Last week, I concluded our introductory study of elders by making two statements which may have sounded to you novel and perhaps a little radical. First, I stated that not all elders need to be paid. There is both a biblical and an historical precedent for the idea that a church can and should have both vocational elders, that is, paid elders on staff who earn their living from the church, and non-vocational elders, that is, unpaid elders whose profession lies outside of the church, whose living comes from outside of the church, but who come alongside those vocational elders and help to shepherd the church. That is both biblical and historical. Second, I stated that not all elders should come from inside, or outside rather, the church, but rather should be raised up and produced from within. By way of introduction this week, I think it would be beneficial to explore and defend those two statements because beginning the first week in September, we will start to receive nominations for elders and deacons. And if God is pleased in His sovereignty and wisdom to raise up men to the office of elder in this church, they will be non-vocational, that is, unpaid elders, and they will come from inside the church. They will come from among you. So before we go any further, I think it would be wise to answer three questions. Number one, is this biblical? Number two, is this wise? And number three, how will this work? To the first question, is it biblical for a church to have non-vocational, unpaid elders raised up and produced from within the church? To that question, I answer yes. With regard to the question of payment, the critical text is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. I would invite you to join me there in 1 Timothy. We'll be there most of the morning. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In this passage, Paul sets forth two separate distinctions among elders. On the one hand, Paul says, there are those elders who rule well and are therefore worthy of double honor, and by implication, there are those elders who do not rule well and therefore are not worthy of double honor. So there's distinction number one. Evidently, Paul expected that an elder's pay would be commensurate with his effectiveness and faithfulness in ministry. Eldership is not a job for the lazy or the incompetent. Paul clearly expected that the paid elders of the church 
would be evaluated as to whether or not they were ruling well. But that isn't the distinction which concerns us this morning. Rather, the second distinction that Paul makes is that there are those elders who labor in preaching and teaching, and there are those who do not. And those who labor in preaching and teaching, he says, are worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean? Well, because of the Old Testament reference that comes in verse 18, as well as the quotation from Jesus that follows in verse 18, as well as the very meaning of the Greek word teme, it's translated honor as in honorarium, it seems best to understand the honor that Paul has in mind to be in the form of some material payment of some kind. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, when he says that those who proclaim the gospel should earn their living from the gospel. Now, I'm not prepared to establish a policy of paid and unpaid eldership based upon one single isolated text. And I believe that a local church has a great deal of latitude to order their eldership in the way that works best for them. But at the very least, I think that 1 Timothy 5, 17, and 18 confirms that Paul did not view all elders of the church as being deserving of equal wages. He made distinctions among the elders based upon faithfulness, effectiveness, and responsibility. So, is it biblical to have paid and unpaid elders? I suggest that yes, it is. Well, is it biblical for a church to raise up its own elders from within rather than only bringing in men from outside the church to lead them? Well, again, I say yes. Now, I affirm that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus and he left Timothy in Crete neither of whom were native to either region. Timothy was from Lystra, yet Paul left him in Ephesus. Titus was from Antioch, and yet Paul left him in Crete. But Paul left these two men in their their respective churches because they had giftings, particular giftings, which those churches needed at that particular time. In short, it is okay to call an elder from another location particularly if their giftings or his giftings are needed and those gifts do not reside within the members of the local church. It's okay. There's biblical precedence for that. There's historical precedence for that. This was the case, for instance, when William Farrell convinced John Calvin to come to Geneva and to teach them the Scripture and to lead them in the process of reformation. There wasn't anybody there capable of doing so, and Pharrell went and found Calvin and basically threatened him with damnation if he didn't come and teach them the doctrines of the reformation. But I don't think that Jesus or Paul or any of the other apostles envisioned this professional pastorate that we have now where churches simply trade around pastors who are themselves looking to climb the corporate ladder. Rather, from time immemorial, 
whether we're speaking of the elders of Old Covenant Israel or the elders of the New Covenant Church, the elders have always, always, always come from within the believing community. When Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the churches of Galatia at the end of their first missionary journey, Acts 14.23, where did those elders come from? They came from the churches of Galatia. When Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town in Crete, where did those elders come from? Well, they came from the churches of Crete. When Paul instructed Timothy that the elders of Ephesus were to be men who were above reproach, 1 Timothy 3.2, who would determine whether they were in fact above reproach? Well, the church at Ephesus would. How would they know? Evidently, the men in question, the candidates for eldership, were from among them and were known to the church such that they could make an effective determination as to whether they were above reproach. Throughout Scripture and throughout church history, the vast majority of the elders of a local church have arisen from within the local church. And yet, what is the situation that we find here at First Baptist Nixa and in almost every other Baptist church in America? We find an entirely vocational pastorate entirely from outside the church. Now, as I said last week, that's okay so far as it goes. Gordon's been here 20 years. I've been here nearly four. Mike's been here nearly three. We have become you. You have become us. We're from within now. We're no longer outsiders. This is our home. But as this church looks to the future, we need to be focused upon raising up gifted, godly leadership from within rather than exclusively and always looking without. Because a healthy church produces its own leadership. What did Paul tell Timothy to do? Last letter that he ever wrote. 2 Timothy 2.2 the things which you have heard from me, you pass on to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. That's the generational eldership that Paul envisioned within the church at Ephesus. And that's what we need to work towards here. Now as to the next question, is it wise? We've seen, I hope, that it's biblical, but is it wise for a church to have non-vocational elders from within the church. I want to give you four reasons why I think this is a wise practice for a local church. Reason number one, it multiplies the ministry of the pastorate without multiplying the church budget. It allows for more shepherds to be on hand to care for the sheep, and the sheep receive better care when their pastors are not spread so thin among them. Reason number two, it multiplies the collective wisdom of the pastor. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety, says Proverbs eleven fourteen. 
In other words, wisdom is more likely to be attained and mistakes are less likely to be made where there are more eyes looking at a problem. Third, it multiplies the giftedness of the collective pastorate. The spiritual gifts necessary to lead a church do not all reside within one man. They were never intended to. Having non-vocational elders allows for those with pastoral giftings, yet who earn their living in secular fields, business, education, industry, whatever it may be, to exercise those pastoral gifts for the good of the church. And fourth, it multiplies the stability and continuity of the pastor. Something I've seen all too often, something I contributed to once upon a time, I see it in local churches which do not have a plurality of elders, is that one pastor comes in and he spends five years or so crafting the church into his own image according to his own vision, and then he leaves And the church is in turmoil as there's no one to lead them. They're sheep without a shepherd. And so they go and they find another pastor to lead them. And when he comes in, he starts the process all over again. And he begins to remake the church in his own image according to his own vision. And the cycle just repeats itself with every new pastor that comes in. And all along, the church is tossed to and fro without any identity of its own. But if there is a plurality of elders committed to leading the church in a healthy biblical direction, that biblical vision and trajectory will continue no matter who leaves or who stays. A church with a healthy plurality and a healthy plurality defined as a good mixture of inside and outside is a church that is stable throughout the generations. Now, as to the last question, how does it actually work to have non-vocational elders pastoring alongside paid elders? How does it work to have non-staff elders working alongside staff elders? How do they relate to one another? Well, clearly and inevitably, the lion's share of the pastoral work continues to be done by those to whom the church pays a living wage that they may give their full attention and energies to the ministry. That's okay. It's right. While the non-vocational, non-staff elders continue in their respective professions, they make time out to meet together regularly to pray, to plan, and to problem solve working together through difficult pastoral issues that arise. And they make sure that all elders are involved in the personal day-to-day shepherding of the church. What does this relationship look like between staff and non-staff elders? Well, clearly the vocational, the staff elders are going to wield a greater influence within the congregation simply by virtue of their experience and their expertise and their availability 
to the congregation, but they must not wield more authority. And there's a difference between the two, and you can make a distinction. I may have more influence upon the congregation by virtue of the fact that I stand before you and teach for 45 minutes every week, and the fact that my office is always open and you come in and we, we talk together and I have more time for you than, than a non-staff elder would have because he's working 40 hours someplace else. But there's a difference between the influence I have and the authority that I have to make decisions. This means that both the staff elders and the non-staff elders need to prayerfully and patiently work towards a consensus in their decisions. And every elder, especially me, must consciously defer to the collective wisdom of the group, even if I may disagree. Is it hard sometimes? Yes. Is it difficult? Is it humbling for the individual to submit to the wisdom and the will of the group? Definitely. But the benefits of plural, homegrown eldership far outweighs the difficulties. So as we continue through this series, and particularly as we turn now to the question of the qualifications for elders, I want you to be thinking prayerfully about who within this congregation comes to mind when I lay out the following character traits. And I know that you're already thinking this way. I had a conversation with a guy this morning who threw a name at me and said, I've just been thinking about this guy. And I said, good. You keep thinking about it. You keep praying about it. That's what I want multiplied across the church. I want you to prayerfully consider who might fit this portrait. And speaking specifically to the men of the church, I want you to prayerfully consider whether the Lord might be calling you to step up into this leadership role. Could it be that the Lord has gifted, equipped, and qualified you to shepherd the flock of God that is already among you? In the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5.2. Over the next two weeks, we will explore 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. But before we delve into that text, I want to make an important note concerning how we are to interpret these qualifications. I want you to notice that every one, every single one of these qualifications is given in the present tense. Therefore, an overseer must be, not must have been, but must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded, and so on and so forth. Paul is not, therefore, saying that a man must have always met these qualifications in order to be presently qualified to serve as an elder. Why? Well, I can think of two reasons off the top of my head. Reason number one, no man alive would meet these qualifications. For who can honestly claim to have been above reproach his entire life? No one. For there's none righteous, not even one. So it would be a sheer impossibility. 
But on the other hand, if hypothetically that were the case, that an elder had to have always been above reproach, as defined by these qualifications, it would turn the gospel on its head. The gospel, the central foundational pillar of the church, declares that God justifies not the righteous, but sinners freely by His grace, apart from any works and any merit within them, but solely on the basis of the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that those whom God justifies by faith, He sanctifies by the transforming power of the Spirit. That's the gospel. And if that gospel is the foundation of the church, if it is the content of the church's message, then it would make absolutely no sense that the church's leaders would be required to have a history of moral perfection. It's not what we're about. This is not a church for morally perfect people. This is not a gospel for righteous people. This is a gospel for sinners. And Jesus is a Savior for sinners. He did not come to call the righteous to repentance. He came for the unrighteous. He's a physician, not for the healthy, but for the sick. Does it not stand to reason that the leaders of the church, whose foundation and message is the gospel of grace, would be men who themselves have been the recipients of gospel grace? Doesn't that make sense? Does it not make sense that the leaders of the church would be men who have been chosen by grace, called by grace, regenerated by grace, converted by grace, justified by grace, are being transformed by grace, and will be preserved by God's grace until the day that Jesus calls them home? The elders of the church are not to be perfect people. The elders of the church are to be gospel people. Grace people. The elders of the church do not have to have a history of perfection. They have a history of gospel transformation. Functionally then, I do not think a man's past either qualifies or disqualifies him from serving in the office of elder. Rather, what the church is to look for is evidence of the powerful and effectual work of God's grace in their hearts and in their lives, proven over an extended period of time, and to see that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying and transforming them into the image of Christ. In other words, the elders of the church are on the same journey as the rest of the members of the church. They're maybe just a little further along so that they can lead by example. Jesus said that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Therefore, if we want men serving as elders who love much, listen to me, church. If we want men serving this church who love much, leading this church who love much, isn't that what we want? 
then we need to be prepared to ordain men who have been forgiven much. Now, with this gospel hermeneutic in mind, this hermeneutic means method of, ter- of interpretation. This is the way we're going to interpret the qualifications that come. I want to begin working through the 11, don't get panicky, we're going to split it into two weeks, the 11 qualifications of biblical elders that we find in verses 1 through 7. We'll cover three today and eight next week. First of all, we need to establish that a biblical elder is a man. The text of 1 Timothy makes clear that the office of elder and the authority which they bear are reserved for men. Just as, as we heard tremendously over the last two days in the Art of Marriage Conference, just as men are granted authority and headship within the household of the family, Ephesians 5, 22-24, so are men granted authority and headship within the household of faith, which is the church. Now, this is a wildly unpopular and controversial idea in today's society. Just a few weeks ago, we received a, an envelope in the mail uh, containing one of these invitations that gets sent out to every new Nixa resident that turns on their utilities. It's, it's uh, automatically generated. It just says, uh, now that you've moved in, is it time to get plugged in? First Baptist Church and invites them, tells a little bit about us. And there was a note attached to it that read like this. Why would we want to attend a religion that espouses bigotry and hate and is taking women back 50 years? No thanks, all caps. Well, that pretty much sums up our culture's view of what I'm about to say. Paul reserved eldership and authority within the church for men. And that's evident in at least three ways. Number one, it is evident from Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2.12, which is the immediate context of 1 Timothy 3.1. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2 with me. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there's two things forbidden of women in verse 12. Teaching and exercising authority. And those two primary responsibilities are the responsibilities entrusted to elders, as we saw last week. What do elders do? They exercise authority and they teach. And in doing those two things, they shepherd the souls of the church. Elders teach and elders exercise authority. Therefore, what I think Paul is prohibiting in verse 12, especially considering the fact that he immediately goes on to the qualifications of those to whom the teaching and authority office is entrusted, I think what he's prohibiting in verse 12 is a woman to serve in the office of elder. But why? What does Paul have against women? Misogynist. Well, he grounds that prohibition in verses 13 and 14, in the principle of male headship, which is woven into the very fabric of creation. Verse 13, watch how they fit together. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In these verses, Paul provides two reasons why he prohibits women from serving as elders in the church. Two reasons. Number one, he says male headship was established by God in creation. Male headship is the result of the fall. Or, or, sorry, it's not the result of the fall. It's not the result of the curse. It's the result of God's sovereign determination to create man first and to take woman from man. It is not the product of an ancient, outdated, misogynistic culture. In 1 Timothy 2.13, Paul states that male headship was established by the creative design of God from the very beginning. He designed men to be leaders, and He designed women to be nurturers, and He designed a creative order within the household, and He designed a created order within the church. Second, and interestingly, He says this male headship placed a responsibility upon Adam that was not placed upon Eve. It says Eve was deceived and she fell into transgression. Kind of get the idea that she stumbled into sin by means of the serpent's deception. Not Adam. Adam was not deceived. Adam rebelled against God with his eyes wide open by a free act of his own will. And that's why the Bible establishes the condemned race of humanity and sets it in opposition to the redeemed race of believers and categorizes them not as those who are in Eve and those who are in Christ, but rather those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. When the Bible places blame for the fall, it does not place the blame at the feet of Eve because she wasn't the head. It lays the blame at the feet of Adam who failed to exercise godly headship in his household. That's reason number one. It comes from 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. Reason number two that elders are to be men, I think is evident from the text of 1 Timothy 3, 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Anyone there translates the masculine Greek pronoun, indicating that Paul expected only men to be eligible to serve in the office of overseer. In fact, Paul uses the masculine form for every noun, every pronoun, and every participle in this entire passage. Third reason that elders are to be men, I think it's evident from the text of 1 Timothy 3.2. Therefore, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. We're going to get to the meaning of that phrase next week, but I'll tell you now, I think a better translation and a more literal translation of that phrase is the man of one woman or a one-woman man. And there are two words in the Greek language that are translated man. And if you're just reading in the English text, you may not notice any difference between them. In fact, they occur within the course of one chapter. Look up there at uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4. 1 Timothy 2, 4. 
Paul says in verse 4, beginning in verse 3, we'll catch the beginning of the sentence. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all, and your Bibles will have either people or men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, the reason why my Bible translates that people is because it's the Greek word anthropos, which refers to humanity in general, mankind. So when Paul says he desires all men to be saved, he's not saying I only, I only desire that God only desires males to be saved, not women. He's saying he desires all mankind to be saved. So there is a word that refers to men or women. But that's not the word he uses in 1 Timothy 3.2. That's a different word altogether. It's the word aner, and it only refers to men as distinct from women, indicating that Paul intended there only to be men serving in the office of elder. You take all of this evidence together, and it's overwhelming. You have to take the Scriptures and twist it beyond recognition in order to allow for female elders. And that's precisely what so many churches and denominations have done. An elder is a man, first of all. Secondly, an elder is a called man. Now, we've established that elders are to be men, but what kind of men are they to be? We need to begin in verse 1 by affirming that an elder is to be a called man. Now, what form does this calling take? Is it some crisis moment of weeping and tears and outbursts of emotion and existential angst? I mean, does it mirror Paul's call to the ministry on the Damascus Road? Well, some would say yes, but they're wrong. There was a loud and vocal faction in the seminary I went to that said that unless there was some dramatic existential crisis event called a ministry, you probably weren't called and don't belong here. And that caused me a lot of trouble back in my early 20s because I had not experienced such a call and I thought, well, maybe I don't belong here. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that the biblical pattern set forth in Scripture? Well, the answer is clearly and emphatically no. What does Paul say? Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Biblically speaking, I think there are two aspects to the call to elder ministry. There is an inward call and there is an outward call. It's the inward call of which Paul speaks in verse 1. And he, he speaks of this not in terms of signs and wonders and tears and bright lights and getting knocked off of your horse and, and this moment in time date when God called me to preach as everyone was fond of speaking of it back in seminary. He speaks of it in terms of an intense, persistent, inward desire. Uses two words actually, aspire means to reach out one's hand for a desired goal. Desire refers to the intense inward longing that causes one to reach out the hand. And when you, when you take those two words together, you get a picture of a persistent longing for the privilege and the responsibility of eldership. A desire that is so earnest and persistent that it carries a man through the often rigorous process of becoming an elder. Well, who gives that desire? 
Who places this longing within the hearts of men to teach the word and shepherd the flock? God does. And that's precisely how God calls men to the ministry. He places within their hearts a growing desire to teach his word and to lead his church. That's the inward call of God. And I would just ask you men to search your hearts and examine whether you have it. But it is possible that men may desire eldership for less than noble reasons, like pride or greed or a hunger for power or prestige. And so Paul dictates that the inward call needs to be confirmed by an outward call. The outward call is given through the local church. The church, knowing the man personally and intimately, because he's coming up from within, prayerfully tests his inward call by evaluating his life and his gifts and his abilities in accordance with the qualifications that are set forth in Scripture. That's why Paul is not content with what he wrote in verse 1, but continues on to verses 2 to 7. He doesn't just say, if anyone desires to become an overseer, good, and then move on to the next topic at hand. He provides this list of rigorous qualifications that need to be met, giving us the idea that if a man thinks he has an inward call, he needs to submit that inward call to the church, and the church will decide whether to issue him the outward call. Both calls, both inward and outward, must be present. A man who professes to have received an inward call yet cannot be confirmed in that call by the local church that knows him is simply not called. Men do not call themselves and they do not pronounce themselves called. How many churches have been ripped apart because some man in the congregation got the idea that he was called and the church didn't agree with him and he said, well, I don't care what you think. It's not you who calls me. God calls me. No. God calls only and ever through the church. William Perkins, the great Puritan pastor, once wrote, How can you know for yourself whether God wants you to go into the ministry? Well, you must ask both your conscience and the church. Your conscience must judge of your willingness, and the church must judge of your ability. But when both are present, when there is both an inward desire and an outward confirmation that comes from the church, both the church and the individual can be confident that this call has indeed come from God. And they should proceed forward with the process of ordination and installation that Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy 4.14, 5.22, and 2 Timothy 1.6. And notice that Paul says it's a noble work that he desires to do. Some of you are thinking or asking, I hope, speaks well to you if you are, but is it right to put myself forward? Paul says yes. It's good to aspire to the office of overseer. Now you must not seek it out of greed or pride or arrogance or a thirst for power. But it's not wrong to seek positions of leadership. Rather, it is right 
It is good. We need men who want to be leaders. Listen to the words of Philip Ryken. The work of an overseer is good work. As the word suggests, it involves the oversight of God's people. By ruling and teaching, elders supervise the spiritual life of the church. They look after things on God's behalf. And if such oversight is good work, then it is also good for men to seek it. Amen. The work of shepherding the flock is a noble task. It's a good work, but it's not a work to be taken lightly. And that's why there are so many qualifications that follow. In other words, while it's good for the men of the church to aspire to the office of elder, the church must, must be very careful about who it ordains and installs. Which is why Paul's going to circle back to this in 1 Timothy 5.22 and he's going to say, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's Pauline language for ordination. Don't be too quick to ordain somebody. Test him. Put him through the ringer. If he can't survive the elder examination, he won't survive eldership. But I'll close this section with a quote from Calvin. He says, it is not just any kind of work, but is excellent work and therefore hard and difficult. For it is a great undertaking to represent God's Son in the building up and extending of God's kingdom in looking after the salvation of the souls of people whom the Lord Himself bought with His own blood, and in ruling the church which is His inheritance. It is a good work to desire to do. One more qualification I'll look at briefly and then we'll close. Having looked at an elder's call, we now begin to look at his character. Not only is an elder a man, not only is a called man, An elder is an irreproachable man, a man who is above reproach, not unapproachable. He is irreproachable. Nobody can reproach him for some scandalous sin that is in his life. It should be noted that this first qualification is the vehicle which drives the rest of the passage. In other words, every other qualification which follows is given to the church to help them determine whether this man is in fact above reproach. Above reproach does not mean sinless, but rather has the sense of not being ensnared in any open or scandalous sin that would hinder his ministry and damage the reputation of the church. No one inside, or verse 7 would say, outside the church should be able to justly accuse him of serious wrongdoing in his manner of life. To be above reproach connotes a, a certain integrity of life that holds up under the scrutiny of public criticism. For instance, no one should be able to justly accuse a potential elder of marital unfaithfulness, verse 2 or drunkenness, verse 3, or greed, verse 3, or negligence in the management of his household, verse 4, or conceit, verse 6. But why? Why is it so important that an elder be above reproach such that it sits at the head and defines or is defined by all of the further qualifications? Here's the reason. 
It's because an elder must exercise authority within the church, and the church simply will not submit to the authority of a man that it does not respect. Will the church listen attentively and submissively to an elder teach about Christian marriage when everyone knows he's an adulterer, or at least that he's a flirt? Will the church entrust its finances to a man who is known to be greedy, who plays fast and loose with his taxes, or who conducts his business like a used car salesman? Will the church listen to an elder's exhortation to self-control when he can't handle his anger, or he's a glutton or a drunkard? Can an elder be entrusted with the serious task of church discipline when he doesn't even discipline his own kids and hold them to account for their behavior? Being above reproach is integrally related to the issue of authority, and for that reason, it's the driving characteristic of biblical elders. Biblical elders are to be men of exemplary character, conviction, and competence, but they are not men with a perfect past nor a perfect present. Again, we need to be careful to remember the gospel hermeneutic with which we began. These qualifications provide a portrait of a man's present character. And that present character is still being formed. A church must evaluate its potential elders with the understanding that they are going to have a past. And that past may not be pretty. And a church must understand that her current elders are still in the thick of the lifelong war against sin. And they're going to lose some battles. Sanctification is a lifelong process. And what Paul is driving at here is not moral perfection nor sinlessness, but established gospel transformation. You are reasonable, intelligent people, and you know the difference between perfection, which is impossible this side of glory, and righteousness, which is possible by grace through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Elders are not to be perfect men. There are none, but they must be righteous men. An elder, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, is to be an example to the flock in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And he also needs to be an example in repentance, in confession, and in authentic life change. I have not always been above reproach. There are men from my past People from my past, from high school or college, who could lay all manner of charges against me, and most of them would probably be true. There's a lot of things in the past of which I am ashamed, but there is nothing in the past of, for which I am condemned. Those past Sins in my life do not disqualify me or anyone else from serving as an elder, for God's grace has radically changed my life and my heart. I am not the same man I used to be, and that's the point. 
Biblical elders are not perfect people. They are transformed and transforming people. Biblical elders are testimonies to the power of God's sovereign and effectual grace. It is those who have been forgiven much who love much, and therefore the church should not disregard those with a stained past when it is looking for elders, for they, more than anyone else, understand the depth of sin and understand the transforming power of God's grace and are therefore able to be gracious and compassionate in giving real sinners real help in time of real need. Above reproach does not look at a man's past in order to determine his qualifications for the present. Above reproach looks at the man's present and asks, Has the grace of God produced a profound and lasting transformation in this man's life such that he is now a man of spirit-wrought, grace-filled, faith fueled character, competence, and conviction, and can now serve as an example to the flock in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's the question. Can you think of men like that? Nominate them. That's the kind of man we need to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood.